On this episode of the London Lyceum, we have a special edition of the Hanover House. So this was live streamed to YouTube, which you can go watch now if you want. So if you're into the YouTube experience, watching it on there and all the interactions, go do that. You can find it there at our YouTube channel. But if you like the convenience of the podcast, you like listening on the way to work, go ahead and check it out here. So what we cover is the topic of open membership and open communion for Baptists. So this is a special Baptist extravaganza, as you'll find out. And we had a lot of good discussion and debate, so I think you're really going to enjoy it. As a live episode, this did end up going two hours due to listener questions, so I think it was a lot of fun. We hope you enjoy it. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. All right, what's up, everybody who's watching live on either Facebook or YouTube? This is our first ever live episode of the Hanover House to both Facebook and YouTube, but our first ever time trying to go on Facebook. This is the London Lyceum. I'm George Stefaniak, and I'm excited to see how this goes. Uh, We've got the typical issues beforehand that we're trying to iron out and figure out, but I think this is going to be a lot of fun. So... If you don't know anything about us, we're an institution that's all about serious thinking for a serious church. We need more high-octane content for Hungry Church, and we hope to be a small part in providing that to you. But we don't want just any content. We want content that's full of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism, which is really what I hope you guys witnessed here tonight, uh, guys and gals, with 10 friends discussing open membership and open communion as Baptists, or potentially not depending on how we define it. But really, this is why I love the London Lyceum. It's for these exact reasons, because we're not afraid to talk about the hard stuff, but we do it with love for one another, and we know that love is patient and kind. So despite being deeply passionate and convicted about our doctrine, which is good things, we always seek to treat others with respect and honor as the Lord calls us to. So here's how tonight's going to go. I'm going to kick things off with a brief pitch in favor of open membership and communion. Before we debate amongst each other for 30-plus minutes, So this should get the juices flowing and have a good format for discussion. So we've tried different formats in the past. This is going to be a new format, and I hope that this helps generate some really good discussion. We do plan to take questions from the audience at the end. If we have enough interest, I'll at least stick around past the 60-minute mark, but that's that's the plan, so don't get your feeling hurt if uh, everybody bails at 60 minutes. It's dependent on you guys sending in a lot of comments. Um, Now, I do want to introduce everyone quickly before we get down to business because we don't like to do the filler stuff. We like to talk about the issues. Uh, We're all Baptists here tonight, but some of them, uh, some of us are pastors, some are academics, some are historians, some are theologians, and some are philosophers. So this should be a pretty rich discussion. So who should I bring in first? Let's go ahead. Well, I guess, Jay, before I let anybody in, I might as well put my name up here, Jordan Stefaniak, Baptist of the Bone, Uh, just to make sure to get that out there. Everybody knows all right, let's let's bring in uh, Jake Jake Stone. We've got Jake with us. He's the Baptist Pope. Um, who else do we have? Let's let's bring in. Um, do Mitch. I still sound like a robot? No, you sound perfect. We have Mitch, who's origin the allegorizer. Um, <laughs> Je- Jesse's here, so I'm going to bring in uh, Jesse. Jesse, uh, you're our token Arminian. Um, who Cody? Let's bring you in next. Um, you're nerding out over typology or something. And uh, if you didn't know, all these guys part of the London, like affiliated with the London Lyceum, so this should be fun. We've got Jonathan here, um, Jonathan Badley, who uh, let's—he's too smart to be a Baptist. 
And let's see, Morgan, Morgan Bird, welcome to the show. Uh, he's, I like to think of him as a ruthless editor. He, he provides the most voluminous com- comments and feedback uh, of anyone, and it's awesome. And we've got Chris with us. Um, Chris is probably also too smart to be a Baptist, but he likes analytic theology, but not the evil kind. And then whenever they get here, Garrett's supposed to be here at some point. Uh, I like to think of him as the Michael Haken stand. And then uh, eventually Ian Clary. I imagine he'll be here at some point soon, the defender of Christendom. Um, and that'll be fun. So this whole thing got started, I guess, Joe Rigney's episode, um, or not episode, article on sort of defending open membership. And we thought, hey, there's been a lot of talk about this. We should just have a discussion about it because – this is a good forum for that. Uh, so let's let's go ahead and dive in. I'm going to share my screen because I can do that. Let's see, boom, and see this. This is pr- this should be pretty neat. So let's. Oops, I just removed it. Let me add it to the stream. Sorry, guys. Um. All right. Now you see this in here, and I think I can even put a laser pointer thing if I want, but. That's cool. So, uh, super Baptist of me to make it Baptism, Baptist, and Bunyan's Wall of Division. I thought that was pretty creative. I'll take credit for that. So, let's let's go ahead and start in here. So, I'm going to defend uh, open membership to start the conversation because I think that'll help get the ball rolling. I do want to preface. I would not counsel a Pado Baptist to join a Credo Baptist church except in extraordinary circumstances. So, much of this is hypothetical. So, let's let's calm down. Um, and these are my views, and they don't represent everyone here, as you will soon see. So I've got four reasons to do it, and I'm going to go in each of them in turn. So number one, Catholicity. Uh, I think to be Catholic is to affirm the Nicene Creed. I think we all would agree with that. If the nice And that's lowercase c, Catholic, not the, the Roman Catholic kind. Number two, if the Nicene Creed is representative of Catholicity, then its clause on bat- baptism is representative. And if Baptists deny baptism as valid to Pado-Baptists, then they are denying the clause in the Nicene Creed. Therefore, Baptists are not Catholic. But let's see. What is that clause in the Nicene Creed? We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I think you might say, well, depending on what that baptism for the forgiveness of sins is, if that's not water baptism, if that's baptism of the Spirit, then we don't really have an issue here. But if that is water baptism, then that would be an issue. So I'll quickly gloss over that one. But I think that's an interesting argument to put forth. Uh, sacraments and membership. This is Catholicity Part 2. This is the one I think is more uh, persuasive. Membership in the church is based on whether someone is a Christian. If a church denies someone membership, then they are saying that person is not a Christian. Therefore, if a Baptist church denies someone membership because of paedo-baptism, then they are saying that person is not a Christian. I think this is a pretty persuasive argument, but we'll see if you guys agree with that or not. Um, I think that the challenge that will probably be pushed back on is saying uh, something along the lines of denying number two there uh, for various reasons. But we'll, we'll see what everybody says. And I've got the nature of baptism in the Second London Confession of Faith. So there's a couple of sections in the Second London Confession of Faith which talks about baptism. In 28.2, it talks about, it's this is talking about both sacraments, that these holy appointments are to be administered by those only who are qualified and thereunto called, according to the commission of Christ. And then you get into section 29, where it's about baptism specifically, 
where in 29.1, it's a sign. In 29.2, it's those who do actually profess repentance toward God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. And then in three, the outward element to be used in this ordinance is water, wherein the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And finally, immersion or dipping of the person in water is necessary to the due administration of this ordinance. So what I put in here was, well, there's a couple necessary conditions. Number one, a qualified churchman or church context of some sort. Uh, Number two, water. Number three, the triune name. And number four, profession of faith. But what I would say is necessary for proper administration, but not necessary for baptism to functionally be baptism, is profession prior to baptism and immersion. So we'll see what you guys say about that. And then inconsistencies that I wanted to point out. We've got if the exact mode is necessary for baptism, thus invalidating an infant baptism for someone who later has faith or someone that was baptized through pouring or sprinkling upon faith. Why does using grape juice or unleavened bread or, or leavened bread, excuse me, not invalidate communion since the two things should be connected? Uh, why do we accept baptisms done by an unqualified person in a river apart from the context of the local church? So Duck Dynasty guy randomly goes out there and baptizes someone why would we accept that? Maybe you'd say, well, we don't. I'm consistent there. Uh, third, why would we allow a papal Baptist to preach at our church? If they can administer the fountain and foundation of the sacraments and the word, how can we deny them the table? I think that's a strange one. Uh, number four, why do we not rebaptize the member that later determines they only became regenerate in the hour, day, week, month, etc., following their baptism? If this person on reflection determines they were not a believer until, say, six hours after, this seems like it should be grounds for church discipline. And if we wouldn't be consistent in that, that seems to go against having some sort of strict view. And then I've got here, since the everybody seems to throw around, if you want to have open membership or open communion, you're not Baptist. Put a list of guys on here, Henry, Jesse, Daniel Turner. I mean, you've got John Collett Rhineland, whenever Garrett gets here, uh, his, his homeboy. All these guys would be affirming these things. And William Carey, there was a period in his life where he affirmed uh, open communion. I mean, is, did he suddenly stop being a Baptist? Um, Second London Confession of Faith Appendix. It explicitly says we are not insensible that, ins, insensible that as the order of God's house and entire communion therein, there are some things wherein we, as well as others, are not at a full accord among ourselves, as, for instance, the known principle and state of the conscience of diverse of us that have agreed in this confession is such that we cannot hold church communion with any other than baptized believers and churches constituted of such. And it goes on. So to me, the Second London Confession of Faith intentionally takes that out of the confession for a particular reason, to allow for those positions. So if this is not banned from the Second London Confession of Faith, then how can we make the judgment that open membership or communion isn't Baptist besides making Baptist identity based on something other than the most robust confession we have? To me, this destabilizes Baptist identity and removes it from the hands of our confessional heritage and places it in the hands of individuals and modern revisions or expansions. So now you guys can go ahead and change my mind. So that's there. Jake, I loved your face. So I'm excited to see what, what, what you have to say. I'll, if, if we want to come back to the slides, I can bring them back, but I'll take them away for right now and bring everybody in here. So we can just go, oh, is somebody, did somebody else join? No, okay, we've, this is us for now. So I don't know who wants to kick off what you guys think about this, but I am 
excited to hear what you guys have to say. Uh, I know in, in my experience, um, I've definitely encountered uh, a lot of different folks who have different opinions on this and it's been something to think through uh, carefully. I know one of the things we care about here is um, sort of a, a charitableness, a cheerfulness. And I think that's a good thing. But I know one thing we also have to keep in mind when we talk about this is the fact that what we're talking about with the ordinances or the sacraments are what we might call positive laws. Uh, positive laws are laws given by God that don't have um, moral significance in and of themselves, but because God has uh, given them to us and he's given them within the boundaries of a certain covenant uh, relationship to him, uh, those laws take on moral significance. And I think an easy example, something you know to consider, uh, would be something like circumcision, right? Uh, circumcision was this law that was given and then was taken away. Uh, it was a positive law. Now, I think we all know uh, there's a number of instances in the Old Testament when God's people weren't taking circumcision seriously, or even sometimes it was on accident. Uh, I think of Moses's child, and uh, God, it seems to be a life or death issue uh, with circumcision, even though it's a positive law. It doesn't have moral significance in and of itself. Um, uh, I think something, too, that's really sobered me when thinking about uh, the ordinances is the fact that uh, while this is a positive law, it's also a sacramental law. And that means that just like circumcision and, and some, some others, uh, there, is, there is symbolic significance to this. And God um, has given it to us for reasons, and, and that's why we should take it seriously. I know even to think back to, to the garden, think about Adam. Uh, when when Adam and Eve um, eat of the tree, uh, that's a positive law. There's nothing morally significant about the eating or not eating, and nothing morally significant about the tree itself. Um, and so we might even say that the first sin, first fall uh, that in Adam, when we all fell in him, uh, that that was a uh, positive law that was being broken. And so just from the outset, uh, while we do, I do think it's important to be charitable and even cheerful at times. I love the little jokes about our names and stuff like that. Uh, I do think this is a really serious conversation. Uh, we're talking about obeying Jesus. Uh, we're talking about um, things that um, I, I want to be really careful using this word. I, I, I know there's a lot of different variations of, of how we might use this word, um, but I think it could it could uh, come down to something like a theological antinomianism. Um, and, and what I mean by that is not that not that there are those who don't take God's law seriously. But that because of how we've interpreted the law, because of how we've interpreted uh, the scriptures, we end up not taking Jesus as seriously as we should be taking him. And so um, I would say just off the bat, um, in my experience, one of the reasons I've heard people say over the years that um, that this is something that we should just be open about, just it shouldn't be a big deal is that they, we feel like it doesn't carry any sort of moral significance, that we might even say that this is a conscience issue. I think that word conscience was even used in that appendices uh, that you read. But I think the problem with that, the problem with making this a conscience issue is that conscience issues relate to uh, areas that aren't clear in God's law, aren't clear in what Jesus has commanded. And so for us to talk about baptism or the Lord's Supper as, as if it's a conscience issue um, I think steps outside of the of the bounds of how we are to think about the law and how we how we are to think about 
something like antinomianism. And so um, I know that's not necessarily a point by point statement to everything you mentioned, Jordan, but I just want to say from the beginning, for me, this is a really weighty thing. This is not something that I think we should be flippant about. And we um, affirm that we are justified by Jesus Christ. We are righteous because of his, his uh, righteousness that clothes us. Uh, we are still called to pursue uh, as much as we can within the power of the Holy Spirit to obey the Lord Jesus. And so I think that's why uh, we need to take this seriously and to think carefully about uh, about uh, baptism and how it relates to church membership. So I'm not sure that I exactly answered uh, the question or even dealt with it, but that's just why for me, this is such an important issue uh, and maybe some categories for us to think through as we as we talk through this. Yeah, yeah, yeah I have, I have I a question definitely. about about that. Um, <clears throat> so the category of, of positive law, um, would you say that those who are advocating for an open position can do so with while maintaining uh, the category of that positive law? Because it would seem to me that there can be those who say, okay, well, this isn't a positive law. We can just disregard it. It can be a matter of conscience. And then there are others who would say, okay, this is a law, but the way that it gets interpreted by other Christians and other traditions, right, that might differ. They're still trying to keep that law, right? And it's a matter of interpreting the law. So it's not antinomianism, right? It's, it comes down to how do you interpret this particular law. Um, I'll give a brief answer, and then if anybody else wants to jump in, um, I, I think that that's why I would call it a theological antinomianism. Um, I think there have been there's lots of versions of antinomianism that have great motivations that people are trying to do what's right, trying to do its best, um, and so that's why I use that word carefully. I don't want to give the any sense that people are maybe intentionally or um, overtly disobeying God's law because they just don't want to abide by what He's saying. Um, but but there's other categories uh, there. And then I think that's why this relates to church membership. I know Jordan read from the, the London Confession on the article of baptism, but there's also uh, aspects of the article um, under the section on the church that also speak to baptism and how the ordinance relate. And I think that as a faithful shepherd, even I mean, I'm a pastor, and so as a faithful shepherd, one of my responsibilities is to uphold uh, the ordinances as the Lord Jesus has given them uh, to the church. Um, this is one of our main responsibilities is to carry out the government that only Jesus possesses. Only Jesus has all authority. Jesus is the Lord of the church. He's the king of the church. He's the head of the church, but he has um, given needful authority to particular officers to carry out uh, those things. And so I think that's why I know in a way it's a little bit confusing to think about how it relates to church membership because uh, church membership, and again, hopefully this can open up the door for some more conversation, but church membership is something that's voluntary. Uh, when people join our church, uh, I haven't forced them to join. They're, you know, they're volunteering. They're, they're coming to us and they're saying, hey, we would like to submit to uh, this, the leadership of the shepherds that God has placed in this of this flock. And, and so I, I feel like it's my job as a, as a shepherd to, um, to lead people well in obeying the commands of Jesus as, as I interpret them. Uh, at least. And so I think that's why I could, in good faith, not cancel someone out and say, you're not a Christian just because you haven't been baptized or something like that. But at the same time, be willing to hold the line in my own church, because I'll be responsible for how I 
upheld uh, the law and and uh, how I upheld, I guess I would say, the ordinances and how I administered the ordinances and thought through those things for my church. And so um, I don't know, maybe my answer would be maybe, but I think for me, the burden of being a shepherd and being entrusted by Jesus to carry out these ordinances, um, I, I, I really, I, <laughs> I guess the thought that goes through my mind is, is, is kind of like this, um, you know, it's almost like, did God really say, you know, kind of thing. And, and I know that's tricky because it's not this intentional thing, but if I've come to this conviction that this is what Jesus has commanded and that this is what the ordinance is, then I think it's right and appropriate and it is not binding a conscience to, uh, I would even use the word enforce, uh, obedience to this ordinance. And so I've been talking a lot. I'm going to, uh, back off here and let some other people engage. And we also have Garrett who has now joined us. So welcome Garrett. You missed, missed some of the fireworks, but you haven't missed the whole show. So does anyone else want to chime in on uh, at this point? Who wants, who wants a, wants a shot? Jordan, I was going to jump in with a, a quote from the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And I know that in Article 7, baptism and the Lord's Supper are addressed. And I just wanted to add this to the table here so that we are reminded of uh, even the BFM 2000's wording. And it says that the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer. Before this, it says it is a prerequisite. Um, baptism is a prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. And when I think about um, things like the Second London, um, other uh, Baptists in history that you've named, I'm also thinking about our present day SBC life. I'm thinking about uh, the Baptist faith and message and uh, its own wording there of making uh, baptism by immersion a prerequisite to the Lord's Supper and church membership. And uh, so those in SBC life and connected to SBC institutions, um, we are, we're thinking about that aspect of that statement of faith as well. Yeah, that's a good word. Well, I have a couple of things I'd like to say. Um, first of all, I'm kind of interested about the, the statement you had about William Carey. I'm unfamiliar with him ever being an open communion person himself. I know there was some debate about what the uh, mission there in Serampore would be and that there was an original among the three of them agreement that they would be uh, open communion that Andrew Fuller got involved and wrote some things and they ended up being uh, close communion there. I also found it interesting the little chart we had of the men that Jordan showed us um, that held to these views, but I would make the argument by looking at that number, they were the exception, not the norm. And the overwhelming norm in Baptist life was especially on the membership question of being uh, restricted, that the the notion of and not so much open open community that sounds too nice that sounds inviting, so let's go with mixed. I think that gets more at the heart of this. Um, mixed communion is what it is. We've got kind of you know, and I've said jokingly that sounds more like the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt. So, um, but I think the the question here is I want to read what William Kiffin said. William Kiffin said, I have no other design but the preserving the ordinances of Christ 
in their purity and order as they are left unto us in the holy scriptures of truth. And I think that's the question we have to ask is, do we have it clearly defined for us in the New Testament what the church is supposed to do with the ordinances or not? And Baptists were not doing anything that was somehow radical. It was through the history of the church that to be a member of the church, you were to be baptized, and that was to precede then a person coming to the Lord's table. Baptists were simply saying, as we're going to the New Testament to find our uh, marching orders for how we do the church, that that baptism is to be immersion in water of a person after they have they are publicly professing faith in Christ and repentance. They're baptized into the triune name, and now they are able to come and enjoy the benefits of the table. And it's not that we're saying, you know, Baptists were not saying these people weren't Christians. And I would just commend, we could spend the whole night here. I really want to tell people, go and get John Dagg's works. And Dagg really deals with 10 arguments that are presented by those who hold to open communion. And and Jordan talks about one of the things in his slide, there was about the Pado Baptist being allowed to preach. Well, Dag has a whole chapter on that about is it consistent or not? And he disagrees uh, with his landmark counterparts of the day, men like Graves and company. They would have said that no Pado Baptist should ever be allowed in the pulpit. And Dag takes a different uh, approach. So I just think that in many ways, and finally, I would just say that, and I think Dr. Haken has said this, and B.H. Carroll wrote on it, that if Baptists had followed the way of John Bunyan, there would have been no Baptist movement. It would have eventually just disappeared. I mean, Bunyan's church in Bedford, a hundred years after he after he died, was pastored by Pado Baptist. Um, I, I think the Second London. It's interesting the appendix and where they land. Um, I think in some ways they were really, first of all, it was a very small minority of the churches at that time that would have even had open membership or open communion views, number one. But number two, I think because of where they were in that moment historically, they were trying to keep everybody united in a sense. But I think it's fascinating that once you cross the Atlantic and you get among the Baptists in America, when we're talking about men like Isaac Backus, for example, you know, the Philadelphia Baptist Association, they used the Second London, but most all of those churches were, were closed, and they argued vehemently for that, and in the South, and in Charleston. And I think it's that's why you see in American Baptist documents like the New Hampshire, which is where the BFM comes out of, and I even, if I'm not mistaken, the abstract to principles, American Baptist documents have been very emphatic about baptism precedes the Lord's table, and it's connected with membership. And I would just kind of gently push back that people will say that's just, that's landmarkism. And these were people who did not classify themselves as landmark. I, I would argue that in many ways, that's just been the main view that has been in Baptist life. Now, I think we can disagree and I would not say that somebody's not a Baptist in a sense, but I do think, and history shows it, that if you follow down this path, uh, Dr. Nettles said it in class last week that exceptions become the rules eventually. And I think that's where the danger becomes if we make exceptions. We're changing what I would say is the clear teaching of the New Testament. Before long, the changes actually become what is the standard that we practice. Jake, you mentioned um, 
the historical realities in across the pond that led to some people being mixed or open um, and how that changed once it came to the U.S. Um, I think you'd find similar things in missionary contexts. You know, we talked about Carrie and the Baptist Missionary Society. Those were people who were uh, people who were overseas were some of the ones who were advocating for open baptism, um, for open communion, open membership. Um, people have pointed out that churches in Germany and Australia, they tend to actually favor uh, an open view. And I think, in fact, the Baptist Union, uh, which is the bit biggest British Baptist denomination, is something like 80 to 90 percent open. Um, what would you say is sort of you mentioned that it wouldn't wasn't landmarkism in the u.s but what would you say is sort of the impetus behind these different contexts landing on a completely different view right because we've been talking a lot about how it's normative right but we've been talking a lot about how the anglo-american context it's normative but then you get into other settings and it might not be as much of a minority report as it is in the Anglo-American context. Are there, are there reasons for that? Um, does that add any weight to the open view? Well, a few, well, a few things. Number one, I would say in, in connection with the BMS and the guys in India, none of them were ever open membership at all. Uh, they, they may, uh, some of them may have had a tendency on open communion, but none of those men were ever open membership. So I want to make that. Yeah. Communion. That they were not open membership. Number two, if I might get, I don't want to be mean here, but on the, the, the British Baptist union, that doesn't surprise me that that's where most of them land because a long time ago, most of them left what I would say is typical Baptist distinctives. And most of the British Baptists that probably are close membership or close communion would have nothing to do with the British Baptist Union, at, at least from what I would understand. So that may be one reason the numbers are there these days. I would say number three, I mean, you know, I think here in America, we get most things right. So maybe that's why we got it better on the, the baptism and church membership stuff. So, you know, as a as an American here, maybe we'll, you know, go that way. Um, but no, in all seriousness, I think probably now this is just this is just a hypothesis here. So I'm just speculating. I'm not here where I've got a lot of data that I can point to here. But I do wonder in the context of what's different between both sides of the Atlantic is here in America, you've got a context where there's not an embedded state church atmosphere the way that you have over, let's say, in England. And so that could be a reason why the atmosphere a little bit was more conducive for some of them in England to be more open to open membership or open communion than what you have here in America. But again, I, I would say respectfully, I mean, in, in Baptist life, even in Britain for most of this time period, I mean, they are most, all of them are on the membership part. They're restricted. I mean, even somebody like C.H. Spurgeon, who, was very much an open communion guy. That was one reason American Baptists, especially in the South, critiqued him for that. But on membership, he was very much a stalwart that you had to be, it had to be believer's baptism in order to be a member of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. 
So at least on the membership side, I, I would say that the Bunyan view, and I, and I say this with all due respect to Jordan here, but that the Bunyan view was a very, very small view. There just was not that many people who held to it. And I think there's a reason because just from a consistency standpoint in Baptist polity, you know, I don't think it, it, it doesn't work. I don't believe it works. And I just don't think it's consistent with how we understand what baptism signifies in its connection to membership within the local church. And we understand that there's a difference between universal and the local church. But I just think that's a reason why most Baptists historically um, have, have not held to open membership. Now, open communion, I, I can, I'll say this, I can see that argumentation a little easier than the open membership part. Now, I still think open communion is not where I land, um, but I, I would say that I can, I, I see it more. But on the membership part, I just, you know, that's one of the reasons I have an issue even classifying Bunyan as a Baptist. Now, you know, William Kiffin called him our baptized brother and, you know, that's good for Kiffin. He wasn't right about everything. Um, and, and I just would have a hard time, you know, acknowledging Bunyan that way. But but I do think that to get back, I know I'm rambling, to get back to your point, I think that the I, I would wonder if the state church long term over in England, comparatively speaking, maybe. And even in some of those other places where we're talking about Germany or elsewhere, where there's been a long tradition of a state church, maybe that could have some kind of an effect on different views. Well, Jake, if it makes you feel good, I didn't enlist John Bunyan on my on my list just for you. Well, well, that I appreciate that, but you and I'm glad that you found seven people. You know, I'm thinking <laughs> about my chart that I've got of like a hundred Baptists. So you found seven. You know, the other ninety three, they're with me, which is where the tradition is at. So, anyways, but all right. Okay. I want I want to hear Cody, Jonathan, yeah. Jesse, Garrett, somebody, uh, one of you guys. All right. Yeah. Go ahead, um, Cody. I'll be a little more pointed with my question. I think it would be helpful for us to discuss uh, one of your premises, Jordan, about um, is denying membership in the church. Now, I think it's also helpful to have a discussion on whether we're talking about the visible or invisible church, right? Because that is involved in the discussion as well. But is denying membership in the church, right, then denying one's Christianity. Um, And I would just... I think it'd be helpful for us to bounce bounce this around as to whether it is de facto uncatholic for churches to fence their congregation, so to speak, around what would be, you know, secondary issues in regards to theological triage. Um, I think that'd be because that's really kind of central to what our what we're discussing tonight. Yeah, that's a good question. If uh if I could just uh, take the easy route and build a little bit on the foundation Jake's already so helpfully laid. Um, I think a key question, and this kind of gets back to what Cody was saying, um, a key historical question really is, why do we have denominations? So if we look at the uh, institutional church that Jake was mentioning in England um, and trace it back to the you know the late 16th century into the early 17th century, you have a disaffection for certain practices in the church that are considered papistical, Romish, Catholic, and unbiblical. And because of that, because of convictions based on <clears throat> those um, unbiblical practices that uh, what folks that come to be known as the Puritan see, 
you begin to have nonconformists who are not conforming to the practice of the Church of England um, as kind of codified, for lack of a better term, the Book of Common Prayer. And then you see separatists um, in the early 17th century really breaking away. And then later on in the 1640s, 1650s with the Civil Wars, you've got the rise of the dissenting churches, these nonconformists, these dissenters break out and begin their churches because of these convictions. And so I think, um, you know, a question to think about here is why do we maintain these denominational distinctives? Why can't the Presbyterians fold into something like the Episcopal Church in America? Because that was their root. And if we're going to kind of kneecap Baptists on this question, which I think is more fundamental in some ways than even the um, the issues that a lot of the Puritans had with the practice of the Church of England, like kneeling for communion, wearing the surplus, etc. Baptism is kind of, you know, the sacraments for the handmaidens, even though the secondary issues, they're the handmaidens of primary issues. You know, the recognition of Christ, uh, the Church's uh, declaration that these folks are saved and are members of the invisible Church. So I think... Um, you know, this isn't something that is a, it's, it's not a particular, it's not a problem that's particular to Baptists. I think it's something that Baptists are kneecapped on um, a little unfairly. And I would say that to maintain a Baptist distinctive, one must be a Baptist and being a Baptist is believing in believer's baptism. And if one believes in believer's baptism as the mode of entrance into the church of Christ, you know, visible, which again, along with the Puritans, we're attempting to make the visible church fit the invisible church as much as we can, even though imperfectly. I think to do that, you have to maintain um, the practice of believer's baptism. And that's not uncharitable. It's not unloving. I think um, to get back to an earlier point uh, made at the beginning, you know, I, I, that I think Morgan was talking about this. I think um, uh, kind of our right ecumenism, our right Catholicity, our right love for, um, you know, uh, believers of other denominational persuasions, we've kind of hidden this very strong disagreement. It's a strong disagreement. It doesn't mean that we can't recognize one another as Christians. We can't love one another as Christians, but it is a strong disagreement. And it's one that I think will impair the life of the local church if it's left unattended to, because the question remains, you know, if if you're brought into membership of a Baptist church and don't believe Baptist things, what happens when you start sowing discord, even unintentionally by attempting to persuade others, because this is a strongly held belief. You believe that, you know, Baptists are in sin by not baptizing infants, you know, that's a, a strong commitment with, you know, covenant theologians. So I think those are all questions we should talk about. And I hope that kind of circles back to what Cody was saying. So I'm not really answering uh, the question, but I, I hope I've posed some, uh, some helpful, you know, questions to think further on. Uh, I'll go. I, um, I think what Jake and Jonathan and Cody have said are, are spot on. I mean, I think what the, a lot of Baptists are trying to deal with in the 17th century is, what is the nature of a true church? And I think as Jonathan has pointed out, that's what the Puritans are dealing with. That's what the separatists are ultimately dealing with. We do need to distinguish between the the, the local church, the visible church, and, and the universal church. But if we're, we're asking what is the nature of a true church, um, then I think on this issue of baptism, if we think that the only right way of gathering believers or, or gathering a church is baptized believers— then I, I'm not sure how we can set that aside uh, for someone that we don't think has properly uh, been baptized as, as a believer. And so the earliest Baptists, um, yeah, I mean, if, I think if they come to some of the same conclusions, maybe, Jordan, that you presented at the beginning, I think Jake's question is right. Like, did, why, why would why do Baptists even exist? And, it, and as Jonathan, I think, has rightly pointed out, 
Um, Baptists aren't really doing doing anything differently than the Puritans and ultimately the separatists did. It's just that the the pressure point maybe falls in a slightly different place, um, and that is the nature of a true church, particularly as it relates to the issue of baptism. But they're all after um, a pure church and and rightly gathering churches. I would say if you, if you can have open membership um, and be maybe indifferent on the issue of baptism. Why not? Why not be indifferent on other things or other ordinances or maybe even the offices um, of the church? If if these things are sort of audiophora, then 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 why why is it just baptism? Um, so I, we draw these lines in all sorts of places, and, and I think and again I think Jonathan is right. Baptism seems like just as important of a place and maybe more of an important place uh, than some of the other places that Puritans and, and separatists drew them. Garrett. You haven't you haven't talked. Oh, Chris, you got something to I say? Was, yeah, I was just going to say um, around this conversation of membership. Could somebody tell me what membership signifies? Like what it's trying to communicate when we say that somebody is a member? I mean, we've talked a lot about regenerate, you know, be, true church, being regenerate, all that sort of stuff. But what is what are we actually saying when we say this person is a member of this local church? Yeah, because I I think to that question. In the way that we use it nowadays, um, I do think we mean something a little bit more than just merely like affirming the Nicene Creed, right? We're talking about um, like covenantally joining yourself to a particular body, right? And in large regard to whatever, yeah, like doctrinal or confessional standard that church adopts. And so um I think, yeah. So I think when we call someone a member or when we have members, when we, dec- you know, vote members in um, as Baptists, I think we're saying a little more than merely they are a um, member of the universal church um, in regards to th- that and um, maybe a little bit more. I, I mean, I'm happy to flex on that so i've got a question jonathan lehman if i remember right you know he he, he's got this the keys of the kingdom sort of thing with with the local church and how how that functions and if i remember how he kind of explains it right it seems to me the way he explains it is the church is exercising the keys of the kingdom at the front door when they come in through membership saying yes you're a christian i affirm you as a, a fellow believer and the the church discipline on the back end saying no you're no i don't no longer have an affirmation to say you're a believer so it seems it's pretty fundamental baseline level of you're a Christian or not. And so if we want to say that that's not what membership fundamentally means, it means something more. It means you affirm also these other secondary doctrines that I think uh, it makes sense. But when it, it, if membership is just baseline, you're a Christian or not, I think this becomes especially acute in the very off chance that you're in a location where there is not another gospel preaching church within three hours. Very rare circumstances, but possible. That becomes a, an especial big, especially big issue if you're saying, yes, I technically know you're a Christian, but I'm not going to let you become a member of my church because of this other issue. Yeah, I think one other... Can you hear me okay, everybody? Okay, good. Um, by the way, I, sorry I'm, I'm late. I was, I was teaching a, a Greek class. I'm actually right now in a Presbyterian church. Um, so if I get rapidly ushered out the room. Somebody call my wife. I'm probably being persecuted. Um, Let me just for- say tonight that Garrett has won the award this evening. 
Thank you. For the bravest Baptist there is to be there in the in the you know in a sense almost. Now I want to make this clear. I'm using this figuratively. As he is there over there in Mordor, standing for the, the faith, we That's commend right. our brother tonight. This is a, a wonderful uh, sister church of ours in the area, and so grateful grateful for their hospitality. But um, so I do think the the membership thing I think does signify something more than just a member of the invisible church. When someone joins a specific local church, they are also consenting to, you know, a, a passage like in Hebrews 13, obey your elders and submit to them. And so when a person joins a local church, they're basically having to affirm the the elders and their practice of ministry is something that I'm affirming and I'm willingly and voluntarily submitting myself to. So I do think there's something more than just kind of um, generic kind of uh, mere Christianity involved in membership. There is something, too, about a particular ministry application and uh, local church expression that someone is is consenting to. Um, so I guess I just I just I don't think that we should say that membership is is that broad. This person is part of the universal church. That's part of it. But it is something more particular. This person is agreeing with our specific um, mode of operating as a church. And often that gets specified in a confession of faith. And so I, I, I think I would want to kind of narrow membership down. It is, it's, a, it's a local church who has, and th- that local church has to make some statements about some of these secondary matters. And I think membership is a consent, a, a covenanting to walk together in unity and harmony on those secondary matters. Um, and I think I think that has to obtain. And so if there's differences on secondary matters, I think you have some um, seeds of real dysfunction in, in a church. So I, I would want to, I guess, make membership slightly more more narrow than the, than the universal church. I don't know if that kind of gets at what you're getting at, Cody. Yeah. And I, I would tag in, too, and just say I don't think holding those distinctions in any way makes one necessarily uncatholic. Um, I think one could make the argument that the confessions in and of themselves are an argument for Catholicity in the midst of distinctions, right? That these, at least think about the, you know, some of the Reformed confessions, you know, Congregationalists and Baptists intentionally used Westminster language, I think for the sake of Catholicity, while also making it clear that they were distinctions and that those distinctions would cause them to separate physically um, from these churches to form their own. And so I think even just looking back in confessions, you can make an argument that, um, yeah, the early particular Baptists would have said we are Catholic, and yet we hold these distinctions um, clearly in regards to who can be members in our churches. And so, yeah, I, I think I really wanted to press that issue because reading Lehman's article, it almost sounded sacramental, right? Like membership is a is a visible sign of this invisible reality. And um, if that's the case, well, then it seems to me that the Catholicity piece kind of gets stretched. Um, It's harder to keep it. But if you say it's that plus this covenantal reality that Garrett mentioned, um, then I think that actually keeps a true Catholicity, right? 
Um, so if you think about the actual Roman Catholic Church, right, you have different orders, Franciscans, Jesuits, Augustinians, right? They can recognize that they're all members of the Catholic Church, but just because each order has its own sort of covenant to mission in a certain way, right, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that Catholicity has gone out the window because you're saying, I'm covenanting to be part of this order. Right? And if you think along denominations, more along those lines, right, Baptists have this particular understanding of God's mission, right? Um, and we're covenanting together as this local church to further this mission. That doesn't say anything about the other churches. It's just saying that this particular local body has this particular mission or way of life or whatever it is. Mitch, I know you wanted to say something. Um and I think, Morgan, if you wanted to say something, too, maybe we'll take two more comments and then we'll have some of the listener questions. Sounds good. Thanks, Jordan. I I do think what Garrett said would resonate with Lehman. Um, I don't think Lehman would disagree with how Garrett was thinking about uh, and talking about the uh, on the ground practicalities of submitting to to uh, elders. I know he makes uh, much and I think rightly so Lehman does about uh, the authority in a local church and the keys and affirming people's profession of faith. And um, I, I, th- I think what we're trying to to get at as Baptists is that the Lord has joined together in the new covenant documents, the New Testament, repentance and faith with the undergoing of the administration of baptism. And and with all due respect to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we're trying to not separate what God has kept joined together. We're wanting to maintain a consistent practice and example, which is different, I think, if we invited, you know, uh, a fellow uh, preacher to come and, and preach in our pulpit who who might not be a Baptist. Um they're not administering the the sacraments, though, with the kind of practical specifics that I think Baptists are convinced are laid out in the scripture through those positive laws and instructions. And um, and so I'm I'm wanting to be charitable as a as a Baptist. I grew up in a Baptist church and I don't think I had much ecclesiological uh, thinking for many years as a disciple of the Lord about why we even do things the way we do them. And um, I remember even early in my pastoral ministry feeling great reluctance to the idea of fencing the table, um, thinking about how that just seems unkind. You know, it just seems unkind if I had um, someone who maybe was baptized as an infant that I would deny them membership to my church. It just it seemed um, it seemed like something that um, would be unnecessarily offensive. And yet I don't think those are the only categories to think about that, you know, offense or not giving offense or kind or unkind. If those are the only ways we can categorize those things, well, then I understand those reflexes. But if um, if there's matters of theological consistency and things that the Lord has joined together, then it might be actually more incumbent upon me in practice for the sake of loving my neighbor, loving my brother in the church and, and uh, keeping consistent policy to to uh, follow the example of the scriptures as far as we can discern it, and then sort of let the chips fall where they may. I can't really control how people respond to that or, um, or yeah, whether, whether they take offense to it or not. As much as I can make a charitable case, though, of a consistent practice, I'm trying to keep together faith repentance with baptism. And um, yeah, anyway, I know you, you, uh, you guys can resonate with some of all of that, too. 
Morgan, did you want to add a last word? Um, sure. I, I, I had pulled up, uh, if anybody's interested, um, just go check out, uh, in the second London confession, there is a short uh, article under the article in the church. I think it's section six. There's actually a definition of membership. If, if anybody's interested in it, it, it gives some more specificity on that. Uh, but on this note of Catholicity, you know, I think, uh, kind of building on some of what was already said, we're given these tools in the new Testament for understanding that unity in the church it does not equate sameness. Um, some of the m- most fundamental passages about unity, I think of Ephesians 4, it's almost celebrating how we can uh, believe in one Lord, one spirit, one baptism, and pursue peace uh, with one another in the midst of the, the reality that we are different, that, th- that, that unity is not always conformity. And I think that um, as we pursue Catholicity, uh, in a way, you know, someone, some people might uh, bemoan the fact that there's all these denominations and there seems to be a splintering and that maybe that's why some people uh, don't believe in the gospel or haven't come to faith in Christ because of what they see in the church. Um, but maybe that's, um, I don't know, I don't want to say it's a straw man, but maybe maybe for those of us who are believers and who do have distinctions, maybe instead of um, being so upset about that uh, or, or waffling on our convictions, maybe we just love the heck out of each other. And honestly, do exactly what you and Brandon set out to do with something like the London Lyceum, where you guys are, I think, exhibiting uh, how you can have a real, genuine Catholicity, but not waffle on uh, your convictions. Um, the only other thing that I uh, thought about, you know, you had, you know, the third B in our uh, our point was Bunyan. Uh, his name kind of got thrown out there, uh, but I actually went and read through that document. You know, you had mentioned the document that actually talks about the wall division. And it's so interesting to me how um, even for Bunyan, one of the things driving this discussion was a sort of odd pragmatism. Um, he mentions in there the, the reality of persecution. I think that's something I heard you guys talking a little bit about a state church and some things like that. But we can't forget, too, that persecution was a real aspect of this. And um, it's, it's, it's interesting to me to see that in Bunyan because it reminds me that for all of us having this conversation, most of the time, it is a pragmatic discussion. This is not so much a dogmatic discussion. This is not so much uh, theological. This is, I'm in my church, somebody walks up, they want to join it, and I've got to make a decision uh, as a pastor or as someone who has some sense of authority here, how do we handle this? How do we walk through this? And um, I think be- because that, because of that, it it feels a little bit messy. And I was, I don't know, I was maybe hoping I could hear from you guys. How much of this discussion do you think really is theological versus how much of it really is just practical, trying to make it work uh, in the messiness of of a sinful world and in the messiness of of a of of a life where there are these quote unquote divisions in the church. Uh, in my mind, it seems that it's less theological and it's more pragmatic, uh, but that's just my my the way I see it. Yeah, good thoughts. I mean, I I want to get to the listeners here. So, I, but I'll, for me, I'll say the reason I would push this way is theological and not pragmatic for me personally. Now, I do think it probably is more pragmatic across the board. Um, so that's probably the case, but. Everybody's watching. So if you're on YouTube right now, if you haven't hit subscribe to the London Lyceum, do that right now. Click the little subscribe button. Hit the little like button. If you're on Facebook, hit like, but then open up YouTube and go subscribe to the channel. Uh, and if you're on YouTube, you can go like us on Facebook too or whatever. 
Now, I want to show you guys some of the questions that we've got coming in here. So I'm going to try to show as many of them as I can. And as many of you guys want to hang out for however long, I, I'm good doing that. So we've got here first, good brother John. Uh, how would you deal with the historic and Catholic arguments? Was the sacrament of baptism not practiced for centuries? Have uh, the majority of Christians throughout church history never been baptized? And I think this is a question that does seem to get uh, put out there quite a bit. I don't think we really touched on it. I think it's a it's a good question. I know Luke Stamps just says, I bite the bullet and say, yep, they weren't baptized. Uh, but what do you guys think? I'd like to second Luke Stamps on that. Well, if you follow the trail of blood, you have your answers. So it's pretty simple, simple, simple for me from my how I was reared. So I would like to give just a big war eagle to Luke Stamps. And uh, also, I would, does anyone? I just does say anyone I, disagree. Go ahead. I, I would agree, but I'd also say I think Jordan, your conversation with uh, I think it was Gavin Ortland touched on this a little bit. I thought that was pretty helpful too. Just that the the sources for very early on are. Um, that we just don't have any extant. And so because of that, it's really hard to say. And if you look at kind of the the lineage of the practice of baptism in its kind of uh, 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 form, um, if you look at kind of the, the catechumens, the um, the way in which that folks are catechized, and even if you read some of the, litur- the early Syri- Syrian liturgies, you see that folks are um, kind of excluded from the church at the time when you partake of the Lord's Supper, and it's only those that have been baptized. So um, we have bits and pieces of evidence, but I think it's hard to make an argument one way or the other about at least the first four centuries of the church. So if you do go with the view that there were no baptisms, um, what do you do? And you might just say you disagree with this uh, understanding of the marks of the church, that uh, the marks of the church are sacraments rightly administered. Does that mean that that definition is incorrect? And therefore, the church does exist? Or do you say, well, that definition is still correct, but there was no church because there were no baptisms being rightly administered? I think you have to say that there was an irregular church, which doesn't mean that there wasn't a church. It was just that it wasn't practicing the regular the rule um, of the you know, three marks that we see across church history. And I think the other thing, too, to remember is that because we don't have tons of evidence, I mean, before 1300, 1400, um, and I mean, it was so, particularly before Trent in the 16th century, things are very localized in a lot of ways. And so that's not to say certainly that the churches aren't subscribing to things like the Nicene Creed and there isn't this, um, uh, you know, orthodoxy. But uh, it is to say that I think we would be surprised if we went back, if we were able to go back in time into different locales across the world. I think we would see um, something that does look fairly familiar in uh, different contexts. And I just don't think the sources still exist for that. That's an art. That's not an historical argument. That's not one that I think is even particularly helpful. But it is just something to kind of throw out there. One of the one of the ways I often talk about it, and y'all can tell me this is terrible, but kind of basically at the Reformation is a retrieval of a, a biblical theology of salvation and grace, and uh, in the 17th century is a retrieval of biblical ecclesiology and who was it maybe it was was it jake that posted that statement from kiffin about we were formed before you or what was that what was that quote jake yeah well that was that was one of the things william kiffin was responding to mr Poole, who was criticizing the the seven churches that basically he was saying we're we're trying to we're, we're trying to have a reformation in the land and y'all are y'all are being divisive and 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 causing that not to happen. And Kiffin said, it sounds like you're prejudiced, but we were reforming before you. 
Um, so, you know, but there, there it was, he was claiming it. And that's why, you know, uh, uh, let's see in the 19th century, you know, John Quincy Adams, not the president, but the Baptist theologian wrote the book, Baptist, the, the thorough reformers. That's what they saw they were doing. They were just taking the things that had been passed down to them and they were bringing them to, in their mind, back to the biblical or the term they like to use the most, the primitive way for how we do ecclesiology. And I, I think just, you know, I know we, the comment was made earlier about was was this uh, theological or pra- pragmatic. I mean, in many ways, I, I think those early Baptists, it was it was theological. I mean, it cost a lot. They were not what they were doing didn't gain them anything in society. I think sometimes we're so far removed that we lose sight of just how, you know, in a sense, radical it was for them not to present their their children for sprinkling and being in the state church and all of that. And it was because they had such a a robust commitment that they wanted to do things biblical. And sometimes that was uh, messy and and could be divisive. And they didn't get, you know, they weren't perfect or right about everything. But I think that we should definitely appreciate and seek to steward well a heritage as Baptist of really being a people of the book in the sense that we're trying to order our worship and our practice according to the scriptures. And, and I think if, if I might you know, just say we've that's rooted in the regulative principle, and for most Baptists, we've lost that. And I think that's one reason we're kind of in a place like we are, is our heritage and foundation is in something that a lot of Baptists just have no regard for whatsoever, and that is the regulative principle. And that's not just about you know hymns or instruments, but that's about how we do these things, such as the ordinances and so forth. I would just follow quickly on what Jake has said there. Um, it seems like in the past decade or two, we've, I mean, soteriology, uh, obviously it matters, but it's like we've gotten so caught up on some of the soteriological conversations that we have like forsaken ecclesiological conversations. So that reformed is just a statement about soteriology or what you believe about predestination and has nothing to do with how churches are gathered and how uh, there to operate. And so we are um, we are very much uh, ecclesiologically inept in so many ways. And I, th- and I think that is kind of the reason that we're, we're where we're at right now. Our Scott Clark is very pleased that you mentioned Reformed and uh, ecclesiology going in there. It's more than just soteriology. Okay, next question. Although he's not taking us. We're, we're not. We're not <laughs> That's true. Uh, Jeffrey, so he said, how would each side address someone who makes a second profession of faith after having been baptized, rebaptism, withholding the table until rebaptism? Um, I'll let you guys answer what you think would be the case here. I think I mentioned something along these lines in one of the things I talked about. By, I was going to say by second profession, are they intending someone who wasn't genuinely converted? is professing later or somewhat of like a modern day recommitting your life kind of deal well i don't know i mean how many people today i feel like this is a super common thing in american evangelicalism where it's you know i became a christian i was baptized when i was 11 at camp or whatever and then well i really meant it when i was 17 and when you ask them when were you actually converted there's like super fuzzy murkiness so let's live with the murkiness 
Yeah, I have a testimony of that in my own life. I mean, that's pretty much my story is I was baptized when I was 10, um, but there was no fruit of conversion in my life. And then I believe I was like genuinely converted as a senior in high school. Um, but it didn't really dawn on me for another couple of years until I had a brother tell me, hey, man, I don't think you're biblically baptized. <laughs> um, and so the church I was a member at, at the time in Louisville um, encouraged me to abstain from the supper until I was biblically baptized. Um, and so I abstained for, it was like a couple of weeks or a month um, until I was baptized and then started partaking again. Um, and I would argue, I, I think that's consistent. If we're going to, if we're going to say that proper biblical baptism is the entryway into covenant with a local church and thus into feasting with one another at the supper, then, um, I would say, yeah, that's consistent. And is the safeguard um, elders or pastors sort of vouching and assessing the profession of faith? Is that what keeps a uh, junior higher from going back three or four times? Like what, what, what's, what's sort of the, the guard to keep it objective as much as possible and not let it just be this thing where it's based off of the person's feelings? I think ideally the elders are going to be involved in membership conversations with people, not only joining the church, but having any kind of self-reflective crisis of faith or doubts about their salvation. You would want sound and wise people in churches um, besides elders who are uh, capable of handling those conversations. But in terms of what can affect the status of a membership, and um, and in, in the partaking of the Lord's Supper, I do think there needs to be some kind of safeguard among um, the elders where that kind of conversation is taken to them, and maybe even directly by the person. Uh, we've had this uh, happen in in uh, in our own church where somebody may come and say, "Listen, I've been having doubts about my salvation. I'm not sure I'm a believer. I'm, I don't know if I was saved when I was baptized." And part of what that should require from uh, from the elders is some patient listening and some. Questions questions and probing, but uh, also uh, being willing to live with uh, what Jordan termed uh, some murkiness and that it, it can't be incumbent upon us to have a kind of crystal clear clarity and control. Well, that's a lot of alliteration. Uh, I am a Baptist, but um, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, maybe unnecessary effort to be able to pinpoint uh, dates on a calendar to say on, you know, when were you sincere and those sorts of things. We want to we want to be able to ask probing questions and be willing to entrust the Lord with the conscience of the person who'd been baptized. Um, I grew up across the street with an older lady who uh, I mowed her yard growing up and, and she told me once, she said, I get baptized anytime the church in, uh, offers an invitation for somebody to do it. And so wh wherever she happened to be, if somebody was uh, offering people to come forward and be baptized, I, I don't even know if she could even keep count of how many times she had been immersed. And, um, and yet, we're, we are definitely in a situation in evangelicalism where such poor gospel presentations have resulted in many people walking aisles, praying prayers, and realizing later in life, I am not a believer, and uh, or I was not a believer when I was baptized. And, and what I've said to folks is, well, then what I think happened to you was not a baptism. I think that if faith and, and repentance have happened later in life, then I don't think you're being rebaptized here. I think now you're going to be baptized. Uh, 
and and we would urge you to follow what I think would be the uh, New Testament command in becoming a disciple of the Lord Jesus. So I know it can be tricky, but um, different local churches and elders may handle it uh, with a with a little different threading of the needle. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to you know the the word rebaptism really is not a word that we should use. Um, so I, I think it gets to a really important distinction between a, a, a solid credo Baptist view and other types of baptismal views. And I think we need to really think about what 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 is the efficacy of of the sacrament. Um, that that question of sacramental efficacy is really important because if it's the outward form is actually effecting something kind of just by virtue of the outward form, then I think we have a problem. Uh, the, the outward form really cannot be associated with the, the spiritual reality that it's signifying. And so I, I, I think I've heard um, in some, some recent, well, I've read in some recent um, stuff about in certain views of paedobaptism, like there's something just in the, the physical act of the, of the pouring that brings uh, an infant into the new covenant. Um, and then there's some, some other things that also were confusing to me too, but there's something to the actual, the ritual. And again, that kind of gets us into some of the, a lot of the, the language of ritual and um, c- ceremony and all those things. There, there's something to the outward form that actually affects the, the grace that it's signifying. The, the, there's a, such a close connection between the sign and things signified. And I think for Baptists, we have to really reckon with that language, uh, because if we say that immersion is, there, there's a, such a tight connection between sign and things signified, I think we probably need to use language of rebaptism. So let me, let me just maybe kind of ask that in, uh, as a question, like, for Baptists, do we have a super, super tight connection between sign and things signified? Maybe that's yes. a bad question. Yes, we do. <laughs> Um, you're that, supposed to. Yeah, so that's that's kind of what I was thinking about was if you're not consistent on saying that a person should be baptized for the first time because the first dunking, let's just call it a dunking instead of a baptism, um, wasn't a true baptism. Um, if you're not consistent on that, then it seems to me that you're opening the door to saying, well, that initial dunking when you were a baby, right? It, it'll count now because now you have faith, right? You're, you're separating those two things out. And I think the difference between the rebaptism view is okay. Um, no, the re not rebaptism is okay. That the, that you should not get baptized a second time, even though your six year old profession was insincere that I think the logic of that is basically the same as Pato Baptist logic. I don't know if that made any sense, because both of those separate the the act of being baptized and what it's signifying, the regeneration. That makes sense, maybe. Yeah, I think I'm, I think I think that is related to kind of the the the, I guess the confusion that I have in my head that I I need to think through this more carefully myself. Um, you know, I, I have said just what. Mitch had said earlier about, you know, if, if someone wasn't truly converted and they were immersed in water, 
that just straight up wasn't baptism. And I think that that's, that's true. But that does mean that what we're saying is the sign and the thing signified isn't as closely connected. If there's not the inner, if there's not the presence of a regenerate person, the dunking is just a dunking. It's not baptism. There, there's a distinction between the sign and the thing signified. Um, again, may, maybe I'm getting my my thoughts kind of muddled here, but I'm. Um, I, I guess we cannot say that there's something inherent in the dunking that affects something if the subject is not the right subject. I think you're right. The right subject is, yeah, person is is. Re- regeneration is logically prior to that the sign, correct? Correct. So if the subject yeah. is improper, then the baptism is invalid. So tell me, when I think about the table, you take it worthily or unworthily. You, you're still taking it, but one is to your spiritual nourishment benefit and one is to your judgment. In the same way, baptism can either be to your blessing and encouragement or to your judgment. So the sign of the thing signified remain uh, no matter what in that case. And therefore you're not creating this disjunction where there's like this big gap. It's just yeah. the, the, the sacraments are, the, are functioning the same way. So I think we would all say, yes, the table functions that way. It has a dual, like two sides of the two edged sword, almost like you got both sides cuts you it's either to blessing or to judgment and the same thing would be happening with baptism because i think of what first peter three where this baptism is like noah and the ark where it is salvation to these eight people but it's also judgment to everybody who's under the water so that vision of baptism to me makes makes sense of how how to how to think through that yeah yeah because it's it's a sign and in a sense it's a means of grace, not merely to the individual, but also to the congregation. Right. And so it's a, it's a means of building up the body. Um, yeah. So it's, that's, I think, yeah. So that duality, so to speak, kind of helps, I think with that, with what we're, we're talking about. But I want to add, I would add, I, I would add, that's why we have a duty to explain what it means. This is not yeah. something that should be done, you know, just flippantly or spontaneously. You know, we had a, a baptism yesterday at RBC and uh, Pastor Jim asked a few questions of the brother who was being baptized. And one of the questions he asked him was, as you're coming here, are you are you saying before the Lord and before this congregation that you come here saying that you will, by his grace, follow the Lord all the days of your life? That's being communicated in baptism. So to your point, Jordan, that, you know, it's either, you know, that's either a blessing or it could be a judgment if it's a person who is who is made a false profession of faith, we would say. But but I do agree, you know, language matters. We have to be precise. And I think the whole notion of people getting rebaptized and I've been baptized four times, you know, just just to be, you know, I want to be nice, but that's just ludicrous. That's why we need to get rid of that language. There's only one baptism, and as, as has been said, faith, repentance, then baptism. Um, I remember the lady that the first person that I baptized, she was a member of the church. Um, she, you know, made a profession when she was a young teenager. 
you know, they baptized her, but then, you know, she got older and became an adult. She left the church, did her own thing. She came back. Um, and then she was truly converted. And, and then we baptized her. Well, that, that she wasn't baptized previously. That was just getting wet. This is the true baptism after a person has been converted. So I think that's that's part of this is we've got to do a better job with our, our language, with precision. And yeah. just to add a quick um, blurb for typology, uh, as my aforementioned nickname that I was given at the beginning, um, this is why it's so important, too, is we're preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God that we're making these typological connections for our people so that when they see baptism, they think Noah and the ark. They think all these biblical type scenes that have been given to us in the scriptures so that, it, yeah, it is a means of grace and a, an encouragement for those who are in Christ. And it is a warning to those who, who are not and are living in unrepentant sin. And so um, that's, I think, a, just a blurb. So I've got one more question I'm going to show that's been chatted. This is from Seth. And our historian nerds probably know this the best. Were Baptists routinely excluded from communion and other Reformed denominations? I have no idea. So you guys tell me. They didn't go to them. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm just kind of, I mean, I don't know the answer with all the data sitting here, but I'll just say from, from what I perused, that, I mean, Again, I want to be nice, but they, they, they just, if they were in Bristol, they weren't going down to the Anglican church. You know, they just, they weren't, they, they were going to the, the, the Baptist church they were a part of. So I don't know specifically were they ever barred. That is an interesting question, but just off the top of my head, I don't know how many of them would have ever, you know, frequented um, other denominational gatherings. I mean, that, that, and that's one of the things too. It's just, it's different. You know, I mean, they were the, they didn't have the ability to travel and all the stuff like we do. I mean, I think about from, you know, just any of us, especially in the quote unquote Bible belt. I mean, we drive and I mean, how many churches do we pass, you know, on the way to wherever we're going? I mean, it just, that, that was not their, their life, but in all seriousness, I, I can't really think of very many instances where, you know, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, Garrett would have to help me or Jesse. I mean, I, I don't know of a time, where Andrew Fuller, for example, ever preached in a non-Baptist church um, or any of those men. I just, you know, I know that John Gill didn't let Augustus Toplady preach his funeral because he was an Anglican. Now, they were friends and he respected them. But, you know, Gill's family said, nope. So I, I just think that that would have been very, very unusual. So I think. To uh, I mean, the 1640s and 1650s, even the 1630s, you um, that's where you might find kind of some more interesting ad hoc cases of individuals with um, Baptist leanings being um, held back from the sacrament, um, really out of a fear that they were radical Anabaptists. Um, the other kind of, I think, interesting part of this would be, and it's more of a thought exercise than anything I've seen um, actually in the sources, but... Um, you, you do have early Baptists that are compelled to um, partake of the Lord's Supper at least once a year in the um, established church in England. 
And so there, I think, I mean, I'm thinking of like John Toombs, an early guy. I I would have imagined, even though he had these Baptist commitments, um, before you've got the kind of the splintering and the rise of the um, kind of independent Baptist churches, I would think that he probably was uh, taking communion there because it was um, a a pretty uh, big thing not to. It would be a big signal, um, both uh, religious and political, to uh, absent from the communion uh, table in that church. And I don't think he would have been held back because if you look at the book of common prayer, it talks about um, holding back those that are um, notorious evil livers. Um, and that's really the only provision they make for keeping folks back from the Lord's supper. But that's a really interesting question. Garrett, you had a question, so I'll let you ask it to the group. Though you need to unmute yourself to do so. Rookie mistake. Um, I, I missed the, the beginning of the discussion, so I didn't get to like really come in with the fire that I feel in my heart uh, about this whole discussion. Um, so let, let me just set set this stage for you. And really, this is directed to Jordan as our token open communion guy here. To my knowledge, every Pado baptist denomination, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, all across the board, all of them, because they baptize in infancy, every person who takes the Lord's Supper is baptized. Um, I don't. If someone comes by conversion, they would be sprinkled or poured, and then they would come to the Lord's Supper. And I don't think until then. Um, and in our strict Baptist polity, someone is baptized before communion. So what that means in all of God's universal church throughout all space and time, the only group that is willing to knowingly receive a non-baptized person to the Lord's Supper is an open communion Baptist. That's not the case. How so? Because they would say that they are baptized. They're improperly uh, baptized. They would use some sort of proper or, imp- I guess, what is it? They Yeah, so they would say valid or invalid. If it's a valid baptism, it's an actual baptism. If it's an invalid baptism, you haven't been baptized. But then they would have a further distinction of proper or improper or something like that, where or irregular versus regular. And so they would say, yes, they there are certain accidental characteristics of baptism that are missed at this point, but it, it still counts as a baptism. So they wouldn't say they're admitting someone who's been unbaptized. I think that's that's ultimately where I just I just fail to see the open position as 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 sensible to me is to to have a conviction about what baptism is, and then so whether it be they they weren't immersed, which is necessary to the due administration, uh, or they weren't regenerated, um, which is also necessary. Um, with one of those two criteria do not obtain it doesn't make sense to me some of some of those distinctions about um you know improper but still valid and um I, I, for me it, it seems like we're having to so qualify the, the the word baptism basically to to pare it down to something done with water that you think is baptism and i have to refrain from judgment about about it 
but but I think that's where the the open communion holder who um, who recognize the infant baptism as improper would bring that connection that we talked about earlier between regeneration and the act. Right, that person could still say, well, the the proper mode is regeneration and the act go hand in hand. Right. It's improper when there's a longer period of time between those two things, right? So the judgment from the open person would, would be, does this person make a profession of faith? Right? And if they don't, then you would say, well, that dunking was not a baptism. But if they do, then you would say, or not you, the open person would say, well, it counts as a baptism because faith and these other criteria were met, but it's improper because they were not met in the correct sort of time period, time frame. Right? I think that's how they would be consistent. They would try to be consistent. I don't know if it is, um, but I think that's the logic that would underlie why they would say that, okay, you can still, you can still participate in communion or membership or whatever because the three criteria were met. They just weren't met in the right time frame or order so I, I guess kind of what we're kind of going with that the the sequence is essential to baptism so regeneration is prior to immersion and so if someone is not regenerated it's not baptism if it's not immersion it's not baptism and and it has to be in that sequence too and so if if the regeneration is not does not obtain if the immersion does not obtain and the sequence is out of order, it's not baptism. And so I think, I think that's my view. Um, and I mean, I, if that's true, then obviously it makes sense to me. And I know I'm in the very much minority. So like, I probably am wrong and I'll find that out at some point. I've changed my mind on this before. Maybe I'll change it again in you yes, know, six Jordan, months, you are wrong. two years. I just want to make that you know, clear. When I die, like, I don't know. I, like, I'm not holding this as, like, this has to be the case. Like, I, I'm trying to be faithful to what I think the scriptures say and how we should do proper theology within, you know, the, the confessions of the church and such. But if that's the true case, if the sequence does, is necessary, absolutely, then yeah, th- duh. I'm just not convinced that that is absolutely necessary in that ironclad way. Um, I think of Simon the Magician as an interesting test case. We don't have a lot of information about him, but, you know, he was baptized. And then it seemed that Peter kind of said, you know, like, hey, you're, you're not actually a Christian. And, and I have always wondered, was he, did, did they actually, if he became a Christian and he repented of his ways, was he at that point baptized? Yeah, I know. I know. I'm not supposed to say again, but like, was he dunked in water again? Let's just say that. And I think that's an interesting thought case that I would love to know what happened there because that would clear it up for me. Yeah, I think that's that's, that's a great point. And um, yeah, I, I I think for me that kind of gets at the kind of really the crux of the of the question about the open communion thing is does the you know the, for me those are the three variables is regeneration immersion and sequence. And in in my view, which is the, the stricter view, all three of those have to obtain for it to be legitimate. And, you know, people, 
you know, parse that out differently and that's, that's okay. But for me, I think that's, that's where the issue lies. Over the years um, in our churches. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I interrupt somebody? Yeah. I was just going to say just one last point. So to be, to hold to a Baptist view of baptism, y'all would say requires the sequencing, right? If you deny the sequencing, then you're no longer a Baptist. Is that what I'm hearing? Or you no longer hold to the Baptist position on baptism. I think that's a little less strong than saying saying you're not a Baptist. Jordan brought up earlier, he used used the word accidental, and I think that's a helpful distinction between accidental and essential. Uh, Jordan sent out the articles a few weeks ago about uh, between Gavin Ortland and um, uh, I can't remember who it was. Um, but uh, they, th- that, 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 that became a really big conversation between them two. And I really liked that. I appreciated the argument because they used a good illustration. Uh, Gavin had talked about baseball and he was like, if we play seven innings versus nine innings, it's still baseball. But uh, the response back was, yeah, but, you know, cricket and baseball, they still swing at a ball, but the games are completely different. And so how many factors have to come together for it to actually be 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 be, be essential? I think you've got, you know, y'all are talking about um, the, the, the person, the timing. Uh, but I think another aspect of this conversation that we actually haven't talked about yet is even the, the meaning. And I think there is some difference in in meaning too. So now you've got four things uh, that are potentially different, and and how this word baptism is defi- defined. Yeah, I mean, baptizing the triune name. Um, okay. And then you know, there's a huge debate about what if the 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 status of the person who's doing the dunking. Like th- there are there are a lot of other potentially accidental properties that could be essential properties that. Yeah, that's, so that's, that's I, cool. that was going to be my question, um, I, Jordan. I, I'd be curious to hear from you. I don't, there, I don't know if anybody else agrees with you on this conversation right now. I think there might be some uh, sympathizers, but um, like in your mind, how many of the things have to uh, line up, you know, for it to not just be accidental differences versus essential differences? How many of those points do have to have alignment? Yeah. So the th- the thing in the I put in the PowerPoint. Let's see. I'll share my screen again. As as nerds often do, let's add this to the stream. Okay, I put in four things. So qualified churchmen, let's just say church context of some sort, water, the triune name, and profession of faith. So I said four things. And then I said there were two things that were sort of the the accidental proper slash improper sort of thing, which is profession prior to baptism and immersion. So that that's that's how I categorized it. Um, I think that's probably, I think that's, I don't think I see this one very often. Uh, most of the time when I see people talk about it, they say water, triune name, and water and triune name pretty much. Uh, and I don't know if they say profession of faith all the time. But I do want to say explicitly, you I mean, you have to have a profession of faith. So it, it's not a valid baptism unless you've had a profession of faith. And I think uh, Hodge includes faith, right? But it's not necessarily the faith of the person being baptized. Hmm. But there has to That's be right. faith, somebody's faith. Yeah. Is it that the Lutheran view pretty much like the faith is somehow like quasi? I, I don't know what the proper like channel is, but somehow the parent's faith is a stand in for the infant. Hey, Jordan, may I ask you a question about your slide? 
Yeah. Um, and so on the necessary for proper administration, I'm I'm curious um, why you relegated the immersion part and profession prior to baptism. Why would you put that as necessary for proper administration, but not a condition um, in the mm-hmm. in the top line? What what what's your thinking behind those two in so, the second? I think there's there's two things. I think looking at the text of the confession, it seems it lends itself to, you know, it uses this language of only proper and then due administration seems to say that, you know, there could be a, you know, irregular administration of it for those two things. Okay. Whereas the other ones don't give that leeway. And then I'm doing it also theologically because I'm thinking of baptism. I am thinking of it in a little bit more objective sense than I think most Baptists would say where it's, I think most Baptists would be a little bit more subjective when it comes to the nature of baptism, which is why that timing sequence is so important on the the faith. Where does faith come in? Yeah. But for me, when I think about baptism, I think fundamentally it is God's promise to us that he will keep us and save us and resurrect us from the dead. And yes, it is also my, you know, response to that to say, yes, absolutely. I believe that you will save me. Um, but I think the emphasis is on what God is doing. There's, there's a reason that I'm like passive in the baptismal act. I stand there and I get baptized because it's, it's a symbol of God's resurrecting me from the dead, uh, and not me pledging my allegiance or showing off the strength and power of my faith. Uh, it's supposed to be a sign of what God's doing and his promise to do that for me. So I, I think in my thoughts, I'm wanting to emphasize that. And, and I'm sure you can emphasize it without doing it this way. So I don't want to say that that's the only way you can do it. Yeah, because I think even in the Lord's Supper, here we have an ordinance where we're remembering uh, what God has done, the new covenant promises of what he has done. And um, and yet at the same time, there is a worthy nature in which we are to take the Lord's Supper. There is an element, in other words, of our um, conscious uh, engagement with the ordinance. And so I, I, I certainly appreciate your thinking there on how baptism signifies God's promise toward us. Um, I, the, the, the pull that I feel inwardly is I don't want I don't want to like nudge out. Um, the public profession nature of of how I also see baptism functioning, and that's that's a huge concern for uh, infant baptism in my judgment because there's not faith in the infant being professed. That's actually being excluded, and the infant is being baptized against the infant's will. Um, and all I mean is there's not a willing participation. Um, and so I want baptism publicly to be all about recognizing the promise of the Lord and the new covenant for his people, as well as my, my glad reception deliberately and consciously um, as an engaged party in that ordinance. Yeah, that's good. I know we've been going for 94 minutes, so I know I said 60 and I said maybe up to 90. So I don't want to like, stifle any discussion that you guys have but i also don't want to keep you past your bedtimes because i know you guys are getting old so i'll let if anybody like says yes i need to say something go ahead and pitch in now uh jake jesse jonathan chris garrett morgan anybody you're you're happy to join in now and uh, thanks clark 
I'll put this, put your comment up here. Great discussion, charitable, but also amusing. Jordan, you are brave for taking on the mob. So thank you. Thank you, Clark. I appreciate the support. Anyone Anyone else have any final closing comments? I, I just had a, <clears throat> a quick question about practice um, on the over, over membership side of the discussion for those that advocate for that position. What um, what does that look like in practice when members come into a Baptist church um, without you know agreeing on what baptism is? Um, is there an understanding that they're not to um, talk about it? It seems like a fairly important issue, not certainly not primary, but again, kind of a handmaiden of a primary issue as a secondary issue. How is that resolved? And how is it you know, resolved in a way that doesn't look like um, if they are talking about it, that it's, you know, kind of unrepentant sin in the sense that they're, they're attempting to sow division in the church. Um, Open that up to anybody, particularly Jordan. I'll answer first, Garrett, since I'm the one that's supposed to be defending this position. Uh, I'm not a pastor, so take, take this for what it is. My dad's a pastor, my grandfather on my mom's side's a pastor. So I, I got good pastoral context, I think. I would, like I said at the beginning, I would counsel a Pado Baptist to join another church. So I think that would be my first thing of why, wh- what is it? What's the reason behind joining this church? Why wouldn't you join this PCA, OPC, ACNA, whatever church down the street? And that's probably where it would stop. Now, if for some reason there's no gospel preaching church within 45 minutes, that's when I would say, okay, it, I think this is. We, let's go ahead and move forward, but know that you you won't be able to hold a leadership position or anything like that. And if you become divisive with this, then you know that is grounds for church discipline. To if you're divisive in these ways, so I would be clear in those those formats. But I don't think it would become an issue because pragmatically, nine times out of ten, they're I'm going to counsel them to go down to another church and say, "Hey, have you met this pastor over here? Let's go have lunch together. Let me introduce you to him. And why don't you go join this church?" Yeah, I just would add that an open membership church can can affirm a confession too. And so one of the ways that you would frame it on the receiving end of the member is to say, hey, our church has um, agreed together to affirm this confession as our teaching standard. And if if you're content to be taught from this perspective, we're what we're happy to have you with us. But realize that this is the perspective we're teaching from. And if you think otherwise, you may not promulgate that contrary view in our, in our fellowship that would be considered divisive and a discipline process would, would take place. Um, but you don't have to agree with us. You just can't be noisy about it. That's, that's generally how that conversation goes. And um, some churches fare really well with that. And some, sometimes that doesn't go very well at all. And so it kind of just really depends on the, the disposition of the people coming in. Uh, there, there are some people that just cannot abide a, a difference and some people that can just kind of roll with it. Yeah. And then not to press it too far, but then I would kind of pose the question to Jake um, with whom I, I think I'm in agreement on this, but what you're in the middle of Montana, three hours from any other church, you've, you've got a particular Baptist congregation there. You've got a wonderful Presbyterian brother and sister that show up. They want to join the church. There's, they have no other option. What do you tell them? Well, I love getting thrown this one. I, I would say 
that I do think that there are, shall we say, extraordinary circumstances that may arise at times where we may be in a situation where there's a sense in which we seek to accommodate somebody in this situation. But I I would stress that that would be the rare occasion. Very, very, very rare. And I, and I, and, and to be honest, I would really probably try to help them find something that maybe that there is, because I, I, as Jesse said earlier, I do think that this stuff matters. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that it, it, it's not justification by faith alone because of grace alone and Christ alone. But church ordinance and church government and all of that does matter. It's a very serious thing. And so I would want to be, in that sense, charitable and, and to help as much as I can. But I would have to be very upfront, for example, and say, we're not going to sprinkle your child. And that's going to be their their conscience. They're going to say that's what we believe is the proper way. And there has to be that conversation up front that that's not going to, to happen here. And if immediately, if that's just going to be a real issue, then, then we're going to have to work through stages to help them. I would probably in that situation too reach out to, if they're, if they're Presbyterian, for example, reach out to whoever I would know in that world about, you know, trying to assist and help. But we just don't, you know, we, we can't just, I want to be, we can't do polity by, a, by a, you know, affection in a sense, in which we just feel the urge of wanting to make everybody feel welcome and, and accepted in a sense in which we, we have no standard. Then. We have no distinctive. And, but, I, but I'm sitting here as somebody who's been in pastoral ministry, I do understand that there can be times where we, we say all of these things, but when the rubber does hit the road, so to speak, it, it can be challenging. I want to be clear on that, that. Sometimes it's not always as neat as we wish. You know, in a perfect world, everyone would agree with me and be a Baptist. And, um, you know, in my heart of hearts, I believe that'll happen one day on the other side. But we're not there yet. So we want to be as gracious as possible. So here, here's a thought. If, if you do say, no, you can't join... I think what you should do as that local church in that context in Montana is say, okay, what denomination are you? Okay, let's say you're PCA, for instance. You call whoever that regional session person is and say, look, we need to plant a church here to help this family, and we will help fund it uh, because we believe in you know, Catholic. We want to love and serve this family who needs a local church to support them. So what do we got to do to help get a church started here. I think that would be a, a, a very healthy response and one that would make me less, um, I guess, opposed to a strict view. So let me, let me throw this response out. What if, if you were the only person in your, within 500 miles who believed one thing and your entire community believes something different, is there ever a place for that community to say, why are you, why are you, why don't you just join with us? Um, why don't you submit your uh, perspective and evaluation and not, not. So if I'm in the context of a bunch of Roman Catholics, you're going to tell me just to go ahead and become a, you know, a papist. No, Garrett, that sounds like Christendom. That's not what we're trying. That's not what, we're <laughs> That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying if you go like, be Roger Williams and you go out from among them. Yes. 
I, I guess, I mean, I, for me, when I'm, when I'm thinking about fundamental beliefs, if I'm the only person on the planet that believes something, or if I'm the only person in my own, in my own community who believes something like that's going to really cause me a lot of internal questioning and, and pause. And, um, I don't know. I just think it would be it would be really uh, hard to maintain that belief if you're the only person in that area. It was uh, the, the reality Bart, is the Bartburg Castle. It was it was quite difficult, which is why Luther had to go to the Bartburg and hide from you know uh, the electors or, or be hidden by the electors' forces because he was told at that time by the Catholics that you know you're the only one that believes this. You're the only one in the church that believes this. What are you doing? But no, it's a great, it's a great question. Yeah, well, I think I would, I would love to. Though, historically, that, that couldn't be the case today, right? Because the person is coming from this other community, right? So they, knows that, they know that this other community exists and also the internet, right? So it's not like, oh, I'm this like, yes. this on this solitary island where I'm the only person who believes this. Like, so I don't know if that There would are people who believe there's a flat this. earth. There's something for everything. That's true, I guess. I don't know. I will say I did I did mostly want to ask the question to have Jake agree theoretically with open membership. Well, and even as I sat here and thought later though, after that, after I gave my answer, I would be very I don't know. I mean I, I think this kind of issue is because last week we had this discussion actually in the class with Dr. Nettles, and that was the, the point he made is that when you start making exceptions. When you start when you start down that road, you have already begun a practice where you're saying what we confess, we believe, is open to modification for this and this and this. And once you've made a modification one time, what's to stop you from doing it again? And, and so that's why, you know, even sitting here rethinking what I just said, you know, even I can be wrong sometimes. Um, it would be very I, I'm going to be honest, it'd be very hard for me to swallow. And, so, and say that somehow we're going to redefine membership. What What is required for membership in this case? I, I just think you do open yourself up to what, what you're trying to do to be charitable in the beginning can be can lead to other things. So there, there are other options, though, right? I mean, <clears throat> it is it not possible for the the Paedo-Baptists in Montana to have some sort of meaningful connection and relationship with those believers without them necessarily becoming a member of that church. And, and another accompanying thing that we've talked about some this, this evening, and I would encourage Jordan if he, if he wants to have his Catholicity, but not be open membership is they could have that meaningful relationship. And if you practice open communion, you're permitting the partake of the supper. Um, I, I mean, I don't think it's ideal, but, I, I think that would be preferable to changing your understanding of what it means to be a, a member of the local church is doing everything possible to have a meaningful relationship with them, under, truly believing that they are believers. Uh, if you if you believed in open communion, you would allow them to partake of the supper. But but not having to um, not ha having to change your understanding of what, what membership is and the requirements. For membership. And that was going to be my my proposal, too. But then my concern is and I think this might just be my problem is uh not understanding the significance or the weight of membership uh, yeah. because if I'm not a member and I can take communion, I can preach, I can serve, 
um, I can do all sorts of things and participate in all sorts of things, then what's the membership doing? Well, I say I would say, for example, I would say there's a difference between somebody. So, for example, let's say if you were a guest preacher, there's a difference in that sense. If we have somebody who's not a member guest preaching once, as opposed to saying, well, this man is a he's going to preach here regularly, but he's not a member here. Or to say that somebody is going to serve in some almost official capacity in the church but they're not a member. I would say there's a, that's a big difference there. So that's where membership, it's not saying that a person doesn't have gifts or a person can't do, you know, in some way serve the Lord. But when we're talking about in the context of a local church, I mean, where I would stand convictionally, you know, you're not just going to turn over teaching responsibilities or anything like that to somebody who's not a member of that local church. So I would say that's a, that's one reason why membership is, and you're being accountable. There's a real sense of accountability that you have. You have covenanted. Going back to what does baptism represent? Yes, we are saying that God has brought us into covenant with him. But because it's tied to membership within a local church, you know, we're also saying that we have covenanted with the Lord and we have covenanted with a group of believers here. Um, and so that that makes it different. When There's a difference between when I'm going to where I'm a member at and if I'm visiting another local congregation there's a big difference as far as what my relationship is to those two different places all right morgan go ahead you're the last word i'm going to cut us off because i don't want to make you guys all stay up super late cool um i think earlier when i mentioned pragmatism this is exactly what i meant the last 15 20 minutes we've been talking about these case studies and i think that so many times Really, if we're really honest, what's driving this conversation is your local church has to make decisions. Um, you know, if you guys, I'm sure many of people listening to this are in, in ministry or, or in leadership in some capacity. I mean, this is something you'll have to have conversations about. And uh, so I just wanted to add one thought in light of some of the conversation. Um, you know, I think this opportunity to really pastor people through these conversations to really get to know them, ask them how they form these convictions and um, what would it really, what would it really cost them to submit? Um, I know one of the places that I like to take folks when, when I am walking them through similar situations to what y'all are talking, talking through is even the baptism of Jesus. Uh, it's kind of a awkward thing. I mean, it seems to be so awkward that even John the Baptist feels awkward about it. He feels like it's out of place. He feels like it's, not his place to be baptizing Jesus. And even considering the onlookers, you know, as people witness this person who's sinless and has clearly not repented of any sin, uh, and yet he's going in and being baptized, there's a, a lot of opportunity for him to be misunderstood, uh, for him to be not, under, not, not understand why he's doing this, why he would submit to John in this way. And I like to talk to people about just the humility of submitting to leadership, submitting to a local church, and, uh, and so sometimes people may not kind of fully come all the way to your, your conviction, but you can still shepherd them and pastor them through these conversations. And again, I think what's driving, what's been driving this whole thing from day one was trying to hold the two impulses of both Catholicity and confessionalism. And I think that's in a way that's kind of where the pastoral rubber meets the road, uh, where you really have to just pursue love. Um, make sure that you're clear about the gospel, that, that, that what, what truly saves, 
and that you're trying to shepherd people well to the best of your ability. And I think that helps to, to use the word, help, will help us get through some of the murkiness um, as we shepherd people well through these discussions. Good word. Thanks, uh, Morgan, for closing us out here. So I'll let everybody know. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you're watching now, make sure hit that subscribe button, hit the like button, all that stuff that helps share the content, you know, blah, blah, blah. If you want to support us in other ways, you can also give. You can go to the website, fundthelicing.com, support us, hit give. Uh, there are uh, significant costs to producing content that helps people and it's actually quality and all those sort of things. So I'd encourage you, if you find this useful and helpful, to support us in that in that way. That would be awesome. We'd really appreciate it. And for everybody who's been tuning in, this has been the only Analytic Baptist Confessional YouTube Facebook thing that's in existence. So thanks for tuning in. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.